Welcome to Putting the Real in Real Estate with Dave Nimick, the podcast where we work with real estate enthusiasts to share the unfiltered truth and the reality of real estate. Now our host, Dave. Thanks for tuning in to Putting the Real in Real Estate. This is Dave Nimick, and my guest today is Tom Merritt. He is the branch manager and senior loan officer of the Chicago branch for Summit Funding which is a national mortgage banker. Tom has over 20 years of experience and is ranked in the top 1% of loan originators throughout the country. He's used his interest in educating his clients so that they can make informed decisions as the foundation of his business. He's also coached loan officers throughout the country, allowing him another avenue to educate people and to help them achieve their goals. Tom, first off, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave, for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm glad you could make it. And first, why don't we start off with uh, how you got to this point in your career? Obviously, you have a lot of accolades and, and you've done great. But how did you get here? Tell us about your journey. Ooh, wow. It's been a long journey. As you uh, mentioned, it's been over 20 years in the business. But you know, right out of college, I got into whole corporate America and quickly realized that at least that wasn't for me realized that I kind of wanted to set my own destiny, be able to go out there and as hard as I work to be able to you know, create opportunities. And at the same time, wanted to have an impact. Help people obviously is huge, you know, kind of my vision in terms of where I want to go. And I just felt from a corporate America perspective, it wasn't necessarily as impactful to people. So shortly out of school, realizing this, I started looking around and seeing what might fit for me. And that's when I was drawn to the mortgage banking industry had an opportunity to get in and learn the business. And it's, man, I te- tell you, as I'm sure you're more than aware, at least in your business, when you go out on your own and hang your own shingle, it is tough. And so after sure. about six months in the business, really started to question, you know, was this right? But I think with the planting of seeds, with seeing where it can take you, you know, kind of push over that hump over that mountain, so to speak. And, you know, really and truly the rest is history in the sense that, Things started clicking, things started coming together, learning the business, building relationships, helping clients. And over the course of the next 10 years or so, really started building the business such from more of a salesman's perspective. It was about 11 years ago, which was obviously the same timing, that I recognized that kind of wanted to build more, wanted to continue to grow. I'd hit somewhat of a glass ceiling, so to speak. And that was when I was introduced to coaching. And coaching in and of itself really started opening my eyes and kind of changing my mindset from really being a salesman to more of a business owner, if you will. Sure. And so I started with the coaching, taught me how to build and grow a team, taught me really what the vision and where you're trying to go, and really allowed me to kind of take that next step in business. And just to clarify, so this was coaching when you were the person being coached. Is that correct? Correct. At that point, yes. Actually physically being coached. And five years later, again, it was kind of at that point, I felt as though I wanted to give back. And so that is when I started personally coaching and having the opportunity to coach other loan officers, as well as loan officers within the branch that at that point in time I had created and help them build and grow their, their business, if you will. And so fast forward, here we are, 2022, and I've been blessed with obviously building and growing my personal business, but also being able to build and grow a branch while at the same time helping others across the country with their business specifically and helping them grow as well. 
Yeah, that's outstanding. That really, the ability to share your knowledge and experience with the two decades plus of experience you have. That's great. That's awesome. So the main topic of what we're going to be talking about today is kind of the going through the contract to close process with the mortgage and just make, you know, kind of the do's and don'ts of what to watch out for. So assuming a buyer say is pre-approved with you, they've already gone the pre-approval process and they want to put in an offer. Should they speak with you first before doing so? And, and if so, why, why would that be good? Absolutely. I think it's imperative. You know, one of the best ways to have a smooth and good experience is to keep everybody in the loop. Communication is the key in anything you do in life. And so whenever any of our clients, you know, get to that point where, listen, I found the one, like this is the place. I really think I like it. That's when I love to be brought back into the equation, if you will, just for a couple of things. First and foremost, just to review the numbers. We've seen a very volatile market over the course of the last six months. And so just want to make sure that all of our clients are thoroughly comfortable with where that monthly obligation is going to end up. Obviously, it's easier to put the brakes on there if it's not going to work as opposed to getting all the way down the road and obviously going through those different steps of the process. So definitely get in touch with me so we can talk through the payment. The second thing that we like to discuss and at least talk through is pre-approval letters. You know, obviously, we've had the pleasure of being able to work together in the past. And so we like to make sure that we have a little bit of a competitive advantage or at least put the, the client's best interests first. And so we want to make sure that we've got a letter specific to what they're trying to accomplish. So whether that means just putting the address on there, whether that means putting a specific purchase price, a specific loan amount, specific amount down, those are the types of things that we want to make sure that we discuss. We obviously loop you or the real estate agent in, and we basically make sure that we've got a plan of attack to best put ourselves in a position to win the offer. That's great. That's very helpful. And specific with the pre-approval letter, how long do those tend to last? Like what is the, if one submitted, how long is that quote unquote good for? So technically, as long as nothing changes, pre-approval letters are technically good for about 120 days. And that 120 days is the length of time that actual credit reports are good for. One of the questions, again, when I have clients reach out to me when they're about to put in an offer is, again, asking them and making sure we're on the same page, has anything changed? Has your employment changed? Has the down payment requirement or what you have available changed? You know, if it's within that 120 days, the answers are no then we know we're set and ready to go. Okay, that's perfect. Plus, if it's been a little while ago in a, in an environment when the interest rates are changing, right? If the rates have changed and gone up, then what they may have thought might have been their monthly payments could have changed, right? So Absolutely. it's, right, yeah, that's what I figured. So, so making let's, sure that they're comfortable with the monthly obligation is super important. Right, absolutely. I always tell my clients I don't want them, you know, eating cat food, you know, after they bought a house, even if they quote unquote can. So, so next, let's say after the realtor has negotiated the deal and it's gone under contract, what should a buyer do first regarding their loan now that they're under contract? Well, and this is, I don't know if it's a misnomer. A lot of times everything happens at once. You're super excited, probably super nervous. I think probably the last thing people think about is obviously the lending side. They have an inspection that they have. They've obviously have an attorney review period. They need to talk to their attorney. But you know, I ask and usually mention to the clients, keep me posted, let me know. And so as soon as clients go under contract, 
I find it's imperative to let the lender know. The reason being is there are a lot of different dates. There are a lot of different terms that are in the contract that we want to make sure we adhere to so that we can make sure, again, that we keep it as smooth and as easy as possible throughout the entire process. There are times in the past where buyers, borrowers, they get under contract and then they believe the next step is the attorney review, which is true, but they wait until the end of the attorney review before letting us know. And quite honestly, that's a valuable time that we're taking up that we're going to need in order to help them get to the finish line with regards to obtaining their loan. So, Right. And speaking as a realtor, generally, you want to keep all the parties involved because everyone's playing a part, right? So even if a lot of the important, most important things that a lender does can often be after the initial escrow period, or as in Illinois and some other states, the attorney review, right? It's still, it's important that everyone knows, especially a lender right away. Like here's the contract, here's all the terms, just so you hit the ground running as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's imperative to have a cohesive team and group of communicators working together. And so a lot of times, or at least the times I find where there is a little bit of a miscommunication or a lack thereof is when people haven't worked together in the past and don't necessarily keep everybody in the loop. Well, and that brings up a good question because you and I have worked together regularly. So that isn't of question. But if there is let's say it's a new realtor that you're working with that you don't have a good or a bad experience. Are there any initial conversations that you might have with other professionals that are helping get this to the finish line that you might have just to make sure that things are cohesive? Well, yeah. And I think it's, it's good practice you know, to, again, get everybody together. Typically, when we do or when I do go through the pre-approval process, one of my first questions that I ask is, are you currently working with an agent? And you know, obviously, if the answer is no, then wholeheartedly refer you or others that I work with. If the answer is yes, I'll ask who, and then I'll typically ask for their information because I want to introduce myself and I just want to make sure, again, that we're on the same page, working towards the same goal so that you can create that cohesiveness that you need in order to make sure that it's a smooth transaction. Right. Better to tackle it when, you know, before it's necessary so you know, it's smooth sailing when timing is important, right? Mm-hmm. So when does the appraisal normally take place? So clients gone under contract, they're you know, working through, they've done an inspection, let's say that that goes through okay, and they're through again, and because some listeners may not be in Illinois or may not have attorney review, but they're past like the initial aspects. So they're really getting into kind of the mortgage approval. Why don't you walk us through kind of when the appraisal takes place, and some of those details. Yes. So it really third-party items specifically, but not limited to the appraisal are the most important things to get ordered immediately. The reason being is those are the things that are out of our control. So what we typically will do, depending if you do have that attorney review period in that inspection period, is as soon as we get the contract, we'll have an introductory or at least a refreshing call with the client to basically say, okay, congratulations. So super excited for you here are the next steps in the process. And what the next steps in the process look like from a lending perspective is we're going to put together all the numbers now that we've got a specific purchase price, and we're going to put together that formal application. We will send that to you electronically, or we'll get together personally, and we'll meet to walk through it. So again, you have an understanding of what all the numbers look like. You know where all the different options are with that. And as soon as we go through that and you understand it, we'll need you to sign it, which 
basically allows us the ability to start the process. There is one specific disclosure in there that's called the intent to proceed, which essentially allows us to proceed with any and all steps to get you to that final approval. Once that is signed, my next question is, when is your inspection? Now, in your example, you said the inspection's been done all as well. That is not always the case. So we'll always want to make sure that we're coordinating. We don't want to order an appraisal and have it done prior to finding out whether there may or may not be any issues with the property. Assuming that the inspection has happened or it's in the next day or so, we will go ahead and order that appraisal immediately. Again, that is going to be probably the number one thing that's going to hold anything up only because you're working with three or four people's different schedules. The sellers, because they're going to need to access the house, the listing agent, because they're going to more than likely need to let them in, as well as the appraiser. And the appraiser is busy, especially in the spring market, and such that they're going to need to coordinate their schedules to make sure they get there. So the sooner we can order it, the better, but it can't happen until after that initial loan application has been signed. Gotcha. Okay. And another thing, as far as when an appraisal is ordered, like the order has gone in to the appraiser, is that when a buyer is charged for the appraisal? Like, how does it work? Because that's a separate charge or part of, part of the charges. How does that work? Yeah, quite honestly, it depends on the situation. Normally, what we will do is we will collect credit card information at the time of application so that we can pay for that appraisal at the time of ordering or at the time of receipt. Now, technically, or depending upon the appraiser or the appraisal company that is selected, and you know, just kind of going back to some of the new laws that were enacted as a result of 2008, we as a lender do not have the option or the ability to pick the appraiser that is used. And so there's usually an appraisal management company that chooses it. And so depending upon the appraiser or the appraisal company that's ultimately chosen, some require payment up front, some require payment at receipt, others will bill you. And if that's the case, then we would just charge it as part of the final settlement cost that would then obviously you take care of at the closing table. So it really depends. There's no tried and true. But again, just from a best case practice, what we will do is collect that initial credit card information at the time of application, just so that we don't hold up the process having to come back if in the event it's an appraiser that requires payment up front. Gotcha. But either way, the appraisal, once it's ordered, even if the deal falls apart, is the buyer responsible ultimately once the appraisal is ordered? Great question. So it depends on the status. Obviously, if the actual appraiser has not physically gone out to the property and we cancel it prior to the appraiser going out to the property, there will not be any type of charge. If the appraiser has gone to the property but has not completed the report, Typically, there's what's called a trip fee. And that trip fee is usually a third or so of what that typical appraisal cost is. Now, if they have completed the report, we've received the report and have it in hand, unfortunately, they've done their job, they've done their work, and it will be a full cost to the borrower as a result of canceling the deal, which again is why it's important that one, there's communication amongst all parties. And number two, we ask that question because typically the, at that point in time, the only reason that a deal is canceled is typically as a result of inspection items. And so that's why, again, the communication with potential issues from any type of inspection is definitely something that needs to be communicated or discussed. Gotcha. And I asked this question, you and I have personal experience where you've helped a client go from contract to unconditionally approved in a very, very short period of time. 
given an unusual situation, which I still appreciate you being able to do. In a normal situation, though, what would you say, how long a period of time is it between when you as the lender receive the appraisal back and when a buyer, just a normal buyer with normal qualifications would be conditionally or unconditionally, quote unquote, clear to close? Sure. So I think there's usually two different pieces of that puzzle. So what we typically do is after we take that initial application or loan, we order the appraisal, as I made mention. What we'll then do is we're going to submit everything that we have and the full package to an underwriter. And what typically happens is we'll get what's called an initial approval, which essentially states that you have an approval, but is on the condition or a conditional approval on the condition that X, Y, and Z are met. Typically, some of those or a couple of those conditions are appraisal, title, insurance, and then maybe any questions that they may have from the borrower. What we try and do is time it such that we get those, that conditional approval around the same time that we will end up with the actual appraisal. So we can then get the appraisal, turn it around fairly quickly, 24 to 48 hours, and resubmit it for our clear to close. Now, while it is not tried and true with every deal, Typically, from when we get the appraisal to when we have that clear to close, the goal would be in less than a week. Again, if you've timed it out perfectly and it's all kind of worked. Now, in some cases, I've had appraisals come back in three days, so it's not going to be a week later because that initial approval probably hasn't even come back. In other cases, maybe we haven't received the title or we haven't received other third-party items, and so those may hold it up as well. But as I mentioned, the appraisal is typically what takes the longest amount of time to get back just again, coordinating schedules and preparing reports. So I would say, generally speaking, assuming it's stayed on track and there aren't any major issues or anything that may have come up, I would say typically within a week of receiving the appraisal, we should be pretty close, if not at the finish line. Right. And obviously that varies case by case, but that that gives a good idea on kind of what the, the general, because you're doing a lot of lenders that I know of may take longer but it sounds like you're more prepared than the average lender. And therefore, that part of the process can move more smoothly than maybe in different situations. That is definitely the goal. I think the more you can be prepared up front, the, the smoother and better the process is and the more coordinating you know, on the back end. Great. So as they're moving through this process, so let's just say the buyer has gone through, they've had their inspection, they've gotten through that they the loan has been submitted and they're getting close to the closing are there additional things that the buyer should be keeping in mind from a lender's perspective <laughs> absolutely so it's kind of funny there are lots of memes that are out there and again as part of the preparation and the pre-approval process which i think is super important to go through just putting your information online and getting a pre-approval is not going to be sufficient or at least not going to educate you not going to let you know the ins and the outs And most importantly, it's not going to let you know what not to do. There are many ways that you can, I will say proverbial, screw up a deal between when you apply or are pre-approved and then when we get the clear to close or are trying to close. And so we want to make sure that we always, we actually haul in the 10 commandments that we are very communicative with regards to what those look like and what to do or not to do. For example, and these are all real life situations. Do not quit your job. <laughs> I have had clients that have quit their jobs in the middle of buying a home. Now, they were getting a new job, and they had a new job lined up, but that just creates a whole myriad of issues and could could kill your deal. 
Do not go out and buy new furniture, new cars, new liabilities that ultimately you would bring on to your balance sheet because at the end of the day, you need to make sure that you're not going to impact your ability to purchase a property. If what happens usually within anywhere from 10 days to three days before the closing is a underwriter or the closing department will do two things. They will one, verify that you are still in fact employed and they will pull what's called a soft credit report. And that soft credit report is essentially looking to see, have you opened any new debt? Have anything, has anything changed with regards to your liabilities? And if the answer is yes, if there's an inquiry for a car or furniture or a new credit card, what has to happen is we have to re-verify that you have not gotten new debt. And if you have gotten new debt, that you still qualify for this new loan. And so it's really imperative to not rock the boat. Once we've gotten approval, once we have a pre-approval, quite honestly, it's like just hands up, just chill until we get to the point where we're closed. Once we're closed, go nuts, do with what you choose. I've seen a meme that says, do not buy a car once you're approved unless you plan on living in it. That is kind of the way that things go because we just don't want to rock the boat and create any issues. Right, right. And I always tell people, like, if you want to buy a boat, go right ahead. The day after you close, not the day before. So that's great. So a couple of other points along those lines. So even if someone isn't doing anything, making a purchase directly, should they co-sign for somebody else during the mortgage approval process? No, absolutely not. Just because it's not for you specifically, any type of potential obligation or liability that you would incur is going to count against you. So if you're co-signing for your brother, sister, son, daughter, whatever, whoever, best friend, that is a liability that will also count against you. So again, just in the effort and trying to make sure that you don't sabotage your own purchase, do not sign any type of obligation any type, bring on any type of debt that, you know, like I said, could impact. Now, there are times or there have been times in the past where there are situations where things come up. And I understand that, again, I'm going to go back. This is going to end up being the underlying theme, and that's communicate. If there is something that's coming up, a job offer or some type of thing that you may need to purchase or you think you need to purchase or have the conversation with your loan officer just to understand what the impact could be as a result of it that they can advise you accordingly or appropriately. So certainly that makes a lot of sense. As far as the accounts, I know you mentioned any changes to the accounts or whatever. So opening new accounts or closing existing accounts, any additional information you have about that and whether that should or shouldn't be done? Opening new accounts, absolutely, I would avoid at all costs. Closing accounts, probably not as big a deal unless, and when you say accounts, they're bank accounts or there's something that we have verified in terms of more of along the lines of assets. So when we are going through the approval process, you submit asset statements, typically checking savings, 401k, any type of maybe stocks and bonds and things of that nature. We document that. And then when we get to the closing and you send the money that is required for the closing, little be known to many people, we actually look to see what account that was sent from. And if it is not any account that relates to an account that we've verified, we've got issues. 
we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to figure it out. I've had in the past people that will transfer their money to a joint account or some other account that they end up sending a wire from. And it just creates issues. Again, we want to make sure that everything we have is documented and we verified it and we just stick with those specific accounts of those items. As far as closing a credit card or closing any type of liability, typically that is not going to be an issue. But again, I think that hold and fast rule across the board is literally just don't do anything. <laughs> just pay your bills on time as you have been. Don't open, don't close, nothing new, nothing. Don't make any major changes. Gotcha. Absolutely. And it's the point that you made is a good one where you as lenders have to follow the money. Like you have to see what account it's come from or to. And here's another caveat that I want to get your opinion on. As far as even if you're not introducing new accounts, what if $75,000 deposit occurs within one of your accounts? Why don't you give some examples of when that may happen and what kind of situations that may cause? Yeah, absolutely. So again, one of the 10 commandments that we have is do not move or deposit any type of large sums of money. And you know, a large sum of money is typically going to be 25% of whatever your monthly income is or greater. And we have to verify once again, where is this money coming from? So what we do from the start is once you go under contract, we're going to update documents. We're going to essentially take a look and verify your last two months of asset statements, your last two pay stubs. If we see any type of a large deposit, again, anything 25% or more of what your gross monthly income is, we have to verify where did that come from? Is it a loan that you got from a pool shark down the street in order to make this down payment? You know, obviously, if it's a bonus from work or something to that extent, that's very easily explained. We can get the documentation. But as a lending perspective, as you made mention, Dave, is we need to follow the money. We have to verify and know where it came from. And there are some acceptable sources, work, things of that nature that are acceptable, but there are also many unacceptable. You can't draw off of a credit card to utilize that for a down payment or for a closing cost. So again, we highly encourage not to make any big transfers, not to make any large deposits, just keep your normal flow of business going. Now, once you get to the point where you are quote unquote clear to close or you have the final approval, typically at that point, we've already done the research, we've done you know, everything we need to do. So if at that point or another, perhaps you have a large deposit, it typically would work and you get away with it as long as the money that you're sending to the title company comes from one of those verified accounts. Again, just in an effort of staying as high above board and making it as simple as possible, we would still recommend that you don't do that just in case maybe the closing gets delayed and we need an updated bank statement. But if you feel the need to do it, wait until after we give you the go ahead, again, where communication is important, which is typically going to be after that final approval or clear to close. Gotcha. And I'm guessing most lenders wouldn't find the answer. Well, my uncle Joey gave it to me as considered a reputable source, like ins and outs of where it's coming from. All of that is very, very important. Absolutely. So it is very important to trace all the money. And if uncle Joey is giving you this money, we have to confirm and verify that. Now, if it's a family member, we can verify that through copy of the check. 
what's called a gift letter. And that gift letter is basically verifying that this isn't a loan. This is in fact a gift because again, you can't borrow the down payment and you can't borrow the closing costs. It needs to be a gift. And so both parties would need to sign this gift letter. We would need to see the check, making sure it's coming from Uncle Joey and you're not just telling me it's coming from Uncle Joey. And then we actually need to see it deposited into your account so that we can essentially, again, do what I would call a financial audit on your assets and verify what you're telling us is true. Again, communication is the key. If you know that you're going to be getting the gift from Uncle Joey or mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever it may be, work with your loan officer so that you can devise a plan on the best approach and the best way to do it. Obviously, alleviate any type of issue or problem that may come up down the road. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, you'd mentioned these 10 commandments, and I think we've probably touched base on several of them. Are there any other items from those 10 commandments that you'd like to mention? Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like a lot of people laugh, you know, and again, these are things that some people would think aren't necessarily prevalent, but all of these have happened. And obviously, you know, the obvious ones have to do with buying new things, you know, as well as changing jobs or anything from that standpoint. But I mentioned not changing bank accounts. That is something that is huge because, again, we've verified where things are coming from. Purchasing the furniture, purchasing any type of new things that are going to put a credit inquiry onto your credit report could all take or create issues. Not saying that it's not going to allow you to purchase, but you may have to jump through a few hoops in order to get to that finish line. Again, you mentioned the co-signing. That's definitely something that's looked for. And then, you know, I guess the large deposits into your bank account before we have that clear to close. Those are all the things that we definitely want to take into account. I think the only two things, and this is, you know, this is one of the craziest things that I've had happen, but in both of these, again, have happened. So we talk about it is number one, don't spend all the money you save for your down payment before you actually get to the closing. Because then if you don't have enough to put down payment down, you're not going to be able to close on the house. And number two, please make sure you pay your credit cards. I literally had someone from when we started the process to when we got to the closing. And again, we pull this soft credit report just to make sure that there's no debt incurred, but we also make sure that you've maintained your credit. And I did, and I have had a client in the past that stopped paying all their credit cards to save more money, quote unquote. Well, they got a number of different 30-day lates that were then recorded on their credit report, which then in turn killed their credit. I'm happy to report we were able to do some maneuvering at the end. Unfortunately, he had to go from a conventional low rate loan to unfortunately a government backed loan, which you know had a low rate, but now is required to pay private mortgage insurance, higher costs and things of that nature. So it could affect you financially as a result of doing that. Right. And one example that I have from this is years and years ago, I had clients who you mentioned furniture and it got me thinking where I had clients who had gone, were going through the process, whatever, and they had financed like this $10,000 bedroom set or something. I don't remember what it was, but it literally, it changed their interest rate. They were still able to get the loan to your point where there may still be other options that can be done, but it changes what the loan was. Their loan went up by half a percent and that's over the course of 30 years. You know, they cost themselves a lot of money, a lot more than that $10,000 for the bedroom set, which if they purchased it the day after closing, there would have been no concern at all. So it really is, you know, it ties back into the timing of things. 
I still want my clients to enjoy a normal life and whatever, but it really does come down to like being very specific, being boring. Honestly, I would say when they're going through the mortgage approval process, do everything the way you have, because that's what got you to the ability to buy a house. Don't mess that up at all. Do what you were doing, just be boring. And the day after, buy the boat. I don't care, but not, not while you're going through the process, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it couldn't be clear. Be boring is a good way to put it. Right. So you'd mentioned that you've had some crazy things. Why don't you give us kind of like the, just the craziest, like completely off the rails scenario that's happened to you in the business with regards to helping people finance home? Wow, that's tough. And probably your crazy or people's crazy probably aren't the same as my crazy, if you will. But you know, I think it comes down to just things that people do with, I guess, without the knowledge or not listening. Specifically, I've literally had a borrower, and this was crazy to me, but literally two days before closing, retired and he quit his job. And so we went to do a verification of employment and they said he no longer worked there. And we called him and said, Hey, you know, you're supposed to close in a couple of days. They just said, you don't work there anymore. What's going on? He's like, yeah, I quit. I retired. I'm done. I'm packing it in. I said, buddy, we talked about this. I'm like, I can't get you the loan unless you, you know, you're employed. Like we are subject to you obviously being employed so you can afford this monthly obligation. Now, long and the short, just because you're retired doesn't mean you can't get a loan. But it's a completely different workup and it's a completely different way that you're qualified for. And again, changing that up, especially at the last minute, just basically throws everything off the rails and creates a lot of issues. One of the most common things that we have happen are the assets. So basically what will happen is we'll get ready. And as I've mentioned it once or twice, we verify your assets. Well, we've gotten to the closing and we see that the money wired to closing comes from somebody other than the borrower. And so basically, hey, who is this Joey guy? Well, that's my uncle. He said he would pay for it. So I just let him wire it there. No, that can't happen. Like we have set in stone what we have and what we need to use. And so it just, again, it depends on the degree of it. You know, quitting your job is a lot different than getting money from someone else. Getting your money from someone else, yes, we can kind of go back, we can figure things out and we can document it accordingly. It's probably going to be a delay in your closing obviously depending upon how close it is to closing, but a day or two, quitting your job, that could mean you can't purchase for two years because I need to show a history of you receiving, whether it be social security and 401k, or if you become a self-employed borrower where now you've started your own business or something to that extent. So again, the craziest things more in line have to do with things that people do that they don't recognize would affect the ability to get a loan. And you know, again, this isn't a car loan where it's twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. We're typically talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so it is very, very important to, as you put earlier, be boring. <laughs> right. That's certainly, you know, not everyone likes to be boring. I don't like to be boring. But financially, it's probably best to just keep on keeping on. Don't mess anything up, right? Absolutely. So uh, <laughs> couple last things. If someone wants to speak with you, what is the best way to contact you via email or do you have a site that they should visit? What's the best way to contact you? I definitely, yeah. Thank you for asking. So yes, I do have a website, but I would say the best way to contact me is either through email or just giving me a call. My number listed on the website, you can look up, you know, Tom Merritt Summit Funding, both my email as well as my phone number will be listed. And, you know, again, I'm fairly approachable, but it gives us an opportunity 
I love to talk people, you know, more of a phone type person, face-to-face type person to, to help build and grow the relationship. Again, a little bit of a different consultative approach that most people don't do, but that's just what I prefer because it allows us to, to help you through the process to educate. So yes, look me up online and give me a call. Feel free to email me, but what you'll find is I will email you back and say, when's a good time to get on the phone? And we'll set up a time so that we can chat. Gotcha. Gotcha. Absolutely. And in closing, is there anything else that our listeners should think about regarding the mortgage process when buying a home? So I think the most important thing is to really put things into perspective. I think it's to really understand and realize that this is more than likely your biggest outlay of money, your biggest responsibility from a liability perspective that you've ever incurred. So I would ask you, is it important enough being this to go with someone or to reach out to someone that's going to give you the information, educate you and help you through the process as opposed to just going online and getting a quick quote. You know, obviously there's an insurance company that says 15 minutes or less save you this amount of money. Well, there are lenders that are very similar to that that are primarily online. The thing is, and this is kind of a quote I like, if you want to drink cheap wine, expect the headache. It's the same thing with regards to lending. If you want to go the cheap route, if you want to go the quick and easy route, you're going to have something that's going to come up sooner or later. Now, maybe you can go through the process and you won't have it this time, but at some point you will because you need a seasoned professional that's going to help you, educate you, take you through that process so that you understand what the impact of anything and everything means to you, as well as be there if there are issues along the way, whether that be at the beginning, the middle, or heck, at the closing table, that you can pick up the phone, your agent can pick up the phone, your attorney can pick up the phone if you're in attorney state and get answers and get things solved in a quick and reasonable manner. Right. And that touches base on actually one of the points that I always make when people are deciding what lender they're going to use. Obviously, I have a couple of really trusted lenders, you being one of them, that I inherently trust and know that things will go smoothly. What I always recommend for anybody is that whatever lender they're going to work with, get their cell phone number and be able to reach them outside of normal business hours, because there are national lenders and whatever lender they're going to choose. If it's something where no one's really accountable, like I want a lender who's accountable, who can answer a question if need be, you know, on a Tuesday at 8.30 PM, if, if something's blowing up, like here's what the situation is, where if no one is going to be accountable, then that's when the, you know, what could very likely hit the fan and things are not going to go smoothly and people won't be happy. So appreciate you joining us, Tom. It's been a pleasure to have Tom Merritt from Summit Funding here to walk us through this process. And thank you for listening. And be sure to stay tuned for another episode of Putting the Real in Real Estate. Thank you for listening to Putting the Real in Real Estate with Dave Nimick. Make sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss an episode. You can find our guest contact information and real estate resources in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode of Putting the Real in Real Estate.